Welcome back to the Legal Digest podcast with your host, Natalie. Today, I'm joined by Emma T. Smoktari. She's a future trainee solicitor at Breaches and currently works in their private wealth department as a paralegal. Hi, Emma T. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Um, Today, we're going to talk about private wealth law and the type of work that you deal with, um, updates to that area of law, and also touch a little bit on the recent US dispute over Lisa Marie Presley's estate, which has been brought about by her mother, Priscilla Presley. So um, before we do that, can you tell us what is private wealth law? Yeah, private wealth, I feel like not many people know um, what it includes but it can be quite broad and it depends a lot on the type of clients the firm has and the type of firm that you're at Um, but generally it can be anything from tax advice wealth management um, setting up trusts drafting wills probate um, and again if you're working for kind of more high net worth clients it's it can kind of enter into cross-border estates with an international element to it so it's quite multifaceted um I always think of it as advising clients through various stages of their life. Um, So the relationship usually starts when a client comes to you looking for advice on ways in which they can um, protect their wealth. And then off the back of that, that's normally kind of drafting wills for them and then maybe preparing different tax or trust documents for them um, throughout their life. And then unfortunately when they pass away, it's, it's the probate. Um, So there is kind of a continuity in the client relationship. Um, I haven't been in private wealth long enough to kind of see that through with one client, but the more senior partners in our department, um, they will have worked with someone from, I don't know, maybe their like early 40s, right through to dealing with their probate with their children. Um, So it's very interesting and quite broad. And so what's the sort of typical legal role in that department? Um, It depends on what type of work you're doing, but it is inherently an advisory area of law and it can be quite technical. Um, So it's governed by tax and trust law alongside HMRC or government guidance. Um, In some respects, it can be quite admin heavy. So if you're working on a probate, there's often lots of chasing of banks, third parties and drafting HMRC like tax forms and, and paperwork. So that's the kind of less exciting bit. Um, Then you've got the research element to it. I think with private wealth, um, a lot of the time clients come to you with a problem and um, or kind of a desired outcome. And you've got to wade your your way through the legislation to see if that's possible. And if it is possible, um, how you can do that. That bit definitely comes with a lot more experience to kind of sense check if something is possible and then know where to look. Um, But generally, there is that research side to it. Um, there's then the drafting element, which is the same for all areas of law, but you could be drafting something like a will or a deed of appointment or a deed of deed of indemnity, declarations of trust or trustees resolutions. Um, I will say because private wealth is quite broad, you do end up drafting lots of different types of documents. Um, obviously there are precedents, but sometimes you do have to do a bit of free drafting, which is difficult, um, but rewarding when you get it right. Um, and then finally there's an, a client interaction element so um, you probably don't get that as much with transactional areas of law but with private wealth it's very important because you're obviously speaking directly with the client and sometimes they're going through a difficult time if someone's passed away um, and also I suppose you're 
interacting with third parties like banks or accountants or the revenue. Um, so yeah, it's a very, I suppose, people heavy area of law. Okay. And so you're on a paralegal to training contract route, I guess. So how you would call it? Yes. Yeah. I'd say, yeah. yeah. So how does that work? Cause I, I suppose took a similar route, but it was in house. How is that? How does it work at breaches? And, and why did you decide to do that with them? So for context, I joined Breacher um, last May. Um, and when I joined, I wanted to come here partly because of the work that the private wealth department did. So they work a lot with high net worth clients. There's lots of tax work, lots of trust work and kind of cross-border work. Um, but also because they made it clear that they have um, the firm's good for kind of progression, which is so important and was important to me at the time when I was coming in as a paralegal. Um, and often firms do like dangle the the carrot of a training contract, um, which is so frustrating. But I have to say that um, breaches stuck to their word. And I think that reflects the culture of the firm very much so. Um, but yeah, I remember being told that at Breach, if you put the work in, you are rewarded for it, which is true because I'm very happy and I've got the training contract now. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the path. I came in as a paralegal, um, expressed an interest in staying on as a trainee um, and then kind of went through various reviews and discussions and, and things like that. Um, and then found out who um, whether I was going to be a trainee and, and, I, and I was. Okay. And would you say there's a personality type that's best suited to this practice area? Um, to private wealth specifically or to... Yeah, to private wealth. Um, yes and no. I think you've got to be, you've got to like people. I know some people really don't like the client interaction side of things. Um, and I think you've got to be quite patient and personable because it is an individual that you're dealing with and it's something that's really important to them whether it's protecting their wealth for future generations or it's someone who has passed away and obviously that's always going to be very difficult um I also think you've got to actually like the law um because it is quite technical you are often kind of working with different legislation um so a combination of being liking human interaction and also liking the more, more technical areas um, I also I actually realised this quite recently, if you think about the that specific area of law more broadly, um, I think there's more of an onus on each individual to be able to network and build a profile for themselves, which I think goes hand in hand with the need to enjoy the networking side of it as well and kind of make people feel um, like they can trust you with um, with their personal affairs. I guess you know you need quite a lot of good like people skills when you're working in that area because you're dealing with with um you know clients who I guess they must have very different kind of portfolio to like a normal person you're dealing with quite high net worth individuals and so um maybe the approach would definitely you know be different compared with like dealing with a business if you're in corporate and commercial um so very like people centric um so in terms of like this area of law because we don't hear a lot about it um I, I just remember like when I was at law school looking at the tax element of it and that's probably just one small part of what you do in that department 
But have there been any recent updates to this area of law that would be interesting for us to to, to know about? Yeah. Um, so it's funny, actually, because I read an article recently and it was talking about how much private wealth and tax law has changed in the past 20 years. And I think generally it is an area of law that does always change. And I think it's heavily impacted by the type of government that is around at the time. So it is always changing. Um, but most recently there's been um, two main, I'd say, um, like key things that have changed in the sector. Um, the first would be the introduction of the trust registration service, which is basically this new process whereby all trusts need to be registered with the government. Um, sorry, with HMRC, whether they're taxable or not taxable. Um, and that came in last year. So that's been a big kind of push towards transparency with regards to trusts. Um, and also the new process of applying for probate for non-taxable estates. So before you'd have to fill out one form if it was a taxable estate and a different form if it was non-taxable. But now there's you don't need to fill out the form for the non-taxable one. You just kind of report the figures um, to the revenue when you're applying um, for, for various other documents. So okay. there's always changes in it. Yeah. So lot uh, increased transparency, basically. And you know what the yeah, motivation exactly. behind that was? Because there's been stuff in the press about um, kind of finding out who, um, you know, the investors are in the UK behind certain companies and property owners of large sort of housing estates. So is there a reason, do you think, why that has been the change to the law? I think it is literally exactly what you said. They want to yeah. find out who owns these trusts or the properties or all of these, mm -hmm. these different vehicles that people are using, I suppose, to ensure that tax is being paid when, when it is due. Um, I think they've introduced another type of um, the register of overseas entities, which is a similar thing, again, all with the aim of making it more transparent who these owners are um so yeah all to do with transparency <laughs> yeah and then finally that brings us on to um the question around the recent case um around lisa marie presley's estate and obviously this has attracted a lot of attention because she's the daughter of elvis presley and um probably unexpected that priscilla would would query uh the validity of her wills I think the circumstances around that case were that there was a me an amendment and she's arguing that it's not valid but can you sort of take us through a little bit about that mm. yeah it is a really interesting case and it actually highlights how juicy private wealth can actually be which sometimes sometimes people think it's quite dull um but yes it is um Elvis and um Lisa Presley, it's her, it's their daughter, sorry. Um, mm -hmm. And I think she passed away. Her mother is contesting her will. Um, in the will, there was an amendment to it, which said that the trustees were, initially the trustees were her mum, and I think it was their business, um, the business manager, but the amendment made it her two children. So um, her mother is arguing that the amendment to the will is invalid on the grounds that um, it's, the amendment misspells her mother's name and also that the signature is different from um, Lisa's, sorry, Priscilla's ordinary signature. Um, it's interesting, and as you said, it is a US case, so it probably would be very slightly from the UK, but it's the same principle in that it's going to have to go to court. They're going to have to decide whether it, 
that does change the validity of the the will and how it will actually be distributed. So you do see that a lot in private wealth anyway, where family members come forward and they want to dispute a will. Obviously, it's not the best situation because it can be quite costly and time consuming, and the threshold for um, kind of claiming that a will is invalid is quite high. Um, but just on that topic, then, are there because it's US based um, the case we you know in terms of UK rules have you seen any cases or not necessarily in your firm but um, within that area where celebrities or um, you know quite well-known people have had their will disputed Um, have you sort of come across any sort of um, cases like that? Yeah, it happens a lot more often than people think. But I think, again, because it is private wealth, it never reaches the press because it's also right. private and personal to do with people's affairs. Um, but it happens a lot of the time. And I think when you're working in private wealth, it happens more often than you think at the beginning of kind of the probate process. And towards the end of it, or as it goes on, I think people tend to um, realise that, I mean, there are circumstances, obviously, where you have you have to, um dispute it if it actually is invalid but also you know people are going through a difficult time you've sometimes got to take a step back and advise clients to kind of consider the fact that it might not be what they expected but that is what the deceased person wanted um so it it can be difficult i think that's the more contentious side of um probate which is difficult because you've not only got having to manage the client expectation when someone's passed away but then you've also got to imagine manage it in the sense of it's becoming quite litigious now it can go to court and it becomes you know it's completely out of your hands by that point it goes to a judge to decide all of that um information and then I guess I just because you you mentioned a little bit about your paralegal, paralegal to training contract role so how what was because you talked a little bit about the application process but do you have any advice on anyone who's thinking of doing the same not necessarily um at your firm could be any firm but um you know how would you go about looking for a role like that and making sure that you're standing out from your other colleagues or other paralegals so that you secure your training contract position um I think it is always really difficult when you're going from when you're a paralegal and applying for training contracts and I think I've spoken on the podcast before about how it's difficult because of the law and the actual like studying side to it. But I think it's also largely because of the resilience you need to stick at something when you can't see the reward straight away. Um, so I think patience is probably the most important thing <laughs> yeah. for someone to have, whether it's applying for, uh, applying for training contracts externally or going through the internal route. Um, you've got to, I suppose, trust that, trust that you can't always see what's going on behind the scenes. And I found that incredibly difficult. Um, and I was very hard on myself when I couldn't see the results instantly, but that was my downfall. Not everyone has to like see it that way. Um, but I think I was lucky because um, I had the support of other people within the firm who kept reminding me that I was on the right track and that it was it would pay off eventually. And that kind of kept me motivated because those bad days are so inevitable. Um, so I do think it's important to be working and if you're applying internally I do think it's important to be working in a firm where there is that culture um, and I never felt when I was here that I was I always felt like I was pushing um, kind of an open door 
and that is really valuable as well because some places as I said earlier you you could be in the internal process or be paralleling for years before you are under you are ever offered the training contract um so yeah I think you've got to trust the process um but I think you can only do that if you know that you're doing everything you can on your side of it um so when I first joined the firm I well I think these are the things that contributed to me getting the training contract I think I was present whenever I could be so I went to I made an active effort to go to any internal networking events to get to the know people in different departments. Um, I think I just wanted to get my name out there, particularly when you're working in a completely different department. So I was in private wealth and then property was maybe the other side of the office. You don't tend to interact with people as much. So I was doing all those things to kind of get to know people in the firm. And also aside from that, I think it is nice to actually like the people you work with in the office, kind of have friendships. Um, at work as well um I think also I was keen to try new things I became like a yes woman um just really keen to take on um new things and learn things um I I think that they don't always well they don't expect you to know everything but I think there's an expectation that you want to learn things and you're enthusiastic about trying new things and going out your way to learn them so I think that's important and also, I remember someone saying to me once that you should present yourself and behave in a way which reflects the role that you want to be in, not the role that you are in. And I think that is so important when you're applying, applying internally. So for paralegal to trainee, I kind of acknowledged that I wanted to be a trainee. And I recognised that if I was a trainee, I would be in different departments rather than just private wealth. So I had to step outside of the private wealth bubble. So I was doing lots of kind of property training. I was writing articles for other departments. I was doing kind of BD where I could. Um, and I think that helped to show that I was ready or that I wanted to become a trainee at the very least. Um, and I think the last thing I would say, <clears throat> sorry, is um, to communicate your intentions. I think that is really difficult and I found it hard to do it at the beginning of the whole like paralegaling to training process, not necessarily at this firm. but having those review meetings and taking on the feedback is so important um and just communicating your intention because at the end of the day nobody is as invested in your future as you are so as uncomfortable it is I always just kept telling myself that I have to feel like I've done everything I can on my end of things um and yeah I think if you can quantify why you deserve something you're more likely to to get it and achieve what you want so I think if you're applying internally it's just be more present be more active be as enthusiastic as possible and I think externally the same thing applies but I suppose they don't know you on a personal level so you've got to show that in other ways um and maybe at the interview stage if they're meeting you for the first time you've got to quantify all the things you've done prior to that point as well so I think it all comes into it and the skills you need to show they're manifested in different ways um but yeah, it's it's a slog, but it, yeah. does, it does happen in the end. <laughs> yeah, it does. It can be a frustrating process, but yeah, I agree with you. I think you've really got to make it clear what you want. And if you do that, then people kind of, I suppose, take you a bit more seriously because they think you're serious about your career. Um, but when you're young and you've just left university, it's hard to do that because you're not used to putting yourself in that position. And um, yeah, it's just like a, a learning process, I think, but one but you do you know you do as you said like it happens eventually you don't know when it will happen but it's just that 
kind of that journey that you go on but yeah so that was such a good way to end it thank you so much for coming on today it was so interesting to talk about private wealth and sort of your journey to um to being trainee solicitor um and that brings us to the end of this episode I will leave Emma Teaser's details in this episode's description. And if you enjoyed um, listening to um, her talk about private wealth, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a review.